This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. It's the show all about your animals and the animals around you. I'm Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Heidfield, the retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Today, we welcome our first guest of the new year. It's Emma Rhodes, an avian biologist from the Banding Coalition of the Americas. Since a young age, she's been banding birds to help understand their behaviors and relationship to the world. We'll talk about her monitoring of hummingbirds as well as coastal birds found here in the South. Dr. Major's here, ready for your pet questions, and Libby always likes to hear your brushes with nature. Join our conversation this morning with your phone call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 You can email animals at mpbonline.org. If you miss Creature Comforts on Thursdays, we'd like to remind you that it repeats every Saturday morning at 6. So good morning, Libby. Let's uh, start with you. You've uh, been away from your home for a while. You're back here in Mississippi. What have you been seeing in your yard lately? Oh, gosh, I'm glad to come back and see. You know what? Cardinals. We take cardinals for granted in Mississippi, and I don't get to see them in Oregon. And uh, they're a, a very, um, I guess they're so ubiquitous that we take them for granted a little too much. And I'm very pleased to see my cardinals. Uh, I have a, a red camellia blooming in the yard. And when it snowed the other day, it seems like the cardinals just knew that was the right place to be. And there were like, I think, six male cardinals in the red camellia bush in the snow and it was absolutely beautiful so i thought that was a great welcome home gift and um, i'm really anxious to hear what emma has to say today i enjoyed watching um hummingbirds in oregon uh there where my daughter lives all around that area anna's it's a that's the name it's called anna's hummingbird and uh they're there year-round, and they're especially prominent in the winter. So it, that was really fun to watch all through November and December. And it's kind of amazing that those tiny little birds are, are active. Um, I've read that they get um, in almost critical condition if it gets to be less than 27 degrees, which happened a couple of times when we were there. So anyway, I'm, I've got my feeders clean and my hummingbird feeders clean and hanging out and ready to attract some hummingbirds here and thinking that Emma might give me some tips about um, how to, um, to maybe uh, increase my odds of seeing some hummingbirds this winter. All right. Uh, some communities will be celebrating Bald Eagle Appreciation Day this weekend. Is this an active time for bald eagles? Yes, it's a really good time to see bald eagles. And um, there have been some wonderful pictures taken of bald eagles in LaFleur's Bluff, right behind the Museum of Natural Science recently, and up on the reservoir, really all around the state. It's a, it's a really good time to see bald eagles. And uh, when you look now, this is something that confuses a lot of people, and I get calls and emails from people saying that they've seen golden eagles. Eagles don't get that white head until they're, gosh, about three or four years old, until they're um, mature and ready to start mating. Uh, and before that, they're going to look similar to a, 
uh, to a golden eagle in that they're not going to have the white head at all. Um, and uh, I've, I know I've told you this a couple of times when we've talked about since you're a fan of, of golden eagles. I went to USM also. But uh, eagles, um, bald eagles wear what we call short pants. And you can see their le- legs very obviously when you see them at all. And uh, they're because they fish and go in the water, I imagine is why, but the, the feathers on their legs don't grow down to the toes. They, they have on short pants. So the, uh, but the golden eagle, it does not uh, usually um, fish, so it doesn't get in the water very often. And their uh, feathers go all the way down and hang down between their toes. So if it's, to me, that's a really easy way. That's what we used to teach kids to do, to, to look at their legs instead of their head, if you want to know if it's a bald eagle, particularly this time of year, because we have a lot of northern bald eagles that come down, but they're young, so they're not going to have their white head yet. So look and see if they have on short pants. If they do, they're getting ready to go fishing. All right. And that's a fun way to remember that. I I enjoy it when you share that with us. Uh, Dr. Major, good morning. Um, You know, um, I think most dog owners love it when they get a big sloppy kiss from their dogs, uh, but they might not appreciate uh, the smell of the dog's breath. What are some some things that dog owners have to deal with? Is it or can it be changed? And could it indicate uh, a problem with the dog? Good morning. Yeah, quite often uh, the breath could just about knock you down, uh, and you don't always get it with a kiss, but if you open the mouth and look, generally one of the most common causes of bad breath are the teeth, uh, infection around the teeth. Uh, if you look, pick your dog's gum up, uh, lip up and look at the uh, teeth and gums, uh, quite often, especially as they get older, five, six years old, you start to see plaque build up, uh, and this is where I think February probably is is uh, dental month. But every month should be dental month for our dogs, and certainly uh, things. Some dogs do quite well with the dental chews. Some of those do help uh, prevent tartar. Uh, but once you get this heavy plaque build up, the gums gum line starts to recede, and you get infection, and stand the possibility of losing teeth at a later date. There are other things as well. I mean, dogs are indiscriminate where they lick, so there may be some mouth odor related to that as well. Uh, But how many people that have pets or dogs don't let them lick lick them on the face occasionally? (laughs) So, but these are things, and that's usually, uh, I'd say that 80, 90% of all Bad mouth odor comes from the teeth being uh, infected or have plaque buildup. You know, I think on, on previous shows, you've, you've told us about a way that you could uh, help avoid that uh, by starting out with a puppy uh, and gently uh, doing some gum massages. I think you said maybe get some gauze on your finger. Tell us again about that, if you would. Right. And you need to start this at an early age. A lot of dogs, as they get older, will not tolerate this. You can actually start by massaging from the outside. I, most of these small dogs especially love to have their uh, uh, lips massaged, uh, cheeks, if you will. Uh, I've got a little chihuahua that looks like she wants to go to sleep when I start doing that. <laughs> she just kind of is in, enthralled by that. But you can start then uh, uh, going on the inside without having to open the mouth and use a gauze pad 
or a small toothbrush, soft toothbrush, uh, even without any uh, type of paste or whatever. Uh, they do make toothpaste for for pets, flavored, but actually the baking soda type toothpaste works quite well. Uh, and you mentioned uh, dental chews. Uh, I think I've seen those advertised on TV. Uh, how do they work, and, and do you think they work fairly well? For some dogs, they do. Uh, the uh, Some of them are treated with enzymes, which are harmless as far as uh, going into the intestinal system, the GI system, but can help uh, reduce plaque. There are several brands of those out. Uh, a lot of teeth, just like in people, and I really believe this is true, there's a lot of genetics involved uh, as well. Uh, I see dogs that have had no dental care that have pristine teeth at 8, 10 years old, and then we see dogs 2 or 3 years old that have some really uh, uh, severe teeth problems. And I imagine if you uh, wanted to go the, the dental chew route, your vet could help you pick out one that would be appropriate uh, for your dog. Absolutely, and uh, just take it easy as you with a puppy. A lot of times it's hard to hold a puppy still, so don't try to take a 15-minute uh, episode of trying to brush the dog's <laughs> teeth, but just do it gradually. And a lot of dogs really, I have some clients that say the dogs will come up and present themselves for uh, some dental care. So that's that's really great. Uh, it looks like we have a caller holding, so let's uh, get to that call before our first break, and we'll say good morning to Sandra. Good morning, Sandra. You're on the air with us. Good morning. How are you? Good. What do you have for us today? Well, I'm a, a lover of dogs and cats, and I'm having trouble with, you know, my dogs leaving the cats along. I... I started out with a puppy because I thought that would be the best thing to do, get a puppy and let the puppy raise up with the cat. But still, now that he's gotten about eight months old and pretty big, he's, uh, and I think he thinks they're toys. What he does, he grabs them and he he plays, gets them by the neck and throws them around and, and, and I just don't know what to do with it. It's a great question. It does uh, does happen quite often. And, of course, I guess the question I would have for you, uh, are the cats tolerant of this? Are they? Are yeah, they... They, 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 yeah, they tolerate it pretty well. You know, uh, yesterday, for example, um, my sister has a cat. Uh, and I looked out the window, and there he comes with the cat in his mouth, the cat's just limber, you know, uh, just like a floppy doll. And right. he's running across with the cat. And like I say, the cat's limber and whatever. And so when I yell and he drops the cat, well, the cat runs off. Okay. You I'm, know, this I'm is... afraid that one day he's going to kill it. Well, has he actually hurt hurt any of the cats? As far as you he, can tell. Not, the only cat that he did hurt is there was a little kitty cat. And I think he was doing the same thing, playing with it like it's a doll, a dog or something, a do- you know, a play toy. Once his, habit is, uh, once his habit is learned, it's going to be difficult to break, uh, once they break, to change the habit. Uh, quite often, uh, when you have a young, a young dog, a mature cat will establish some dominance. In other words, if the dog gets too close in the cat's face, 
it will swat uh, swat the puppy uh, and put it in its place. That's going to be difficult to, to change now as far as the uh, demeanor of this dog. And uh, I don't have great suggestions. Somebody else may have one that would help uh, to retrain this dog, if you will, or train it. Uh, but that is that is an issue. When I, when you tell the dog to stop, does he stop? He stops. Okay, and it's hard to be there all the time. I understand that. So, good luck with that. If any of the listeners have a an answer for this, uh, certainly give us a call. And good luck to you. All right, uh, Sandra. Thanks for your call. And uh, Dr. Major, I would say too, as you mentioned, if if there's no harm being done, I guess for the time being, uh, not too much to worry about. Well, I can see how it could be a real problem with small cats, uh, cats that uh, don't know this dog. I'm not sure what would happen if a cat really resisted and started to fight the dog and scratch the dog. But early on, he didn't get the message, uh, the memo, if you will, that cats like to be respectful, you know, respected. He's, he, he likes to play with them. I think that's what he's doing. But at the same time, he could harm them if, if it progresses. It is time for our first break of the hour. When we return, we'll welcome our guest, Emma Rhodes, to the show. She's going to tell us about hummingbirds today. You can call in with your questions and comments at one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 Send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. Back with more after this. Hi, I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. On the original Southern Remedy, we answer questions about all aspects of your health and share some of the latest medical information in the news. You can listen to the show on Wednesdays at 11 on MPB Think Radio, or you can subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your preferred podcasting app. You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major and Libby Hartfield. If you want to join our conversation today with a question or comment, you can call us at 1-877-MPB-RING. It's 1-877-672-7464. Email the show by sending one to animals at mpbonline.org. We're going to talk with our guest, Emma Rhodes, in just a minute. But first, it looks like we've got another dog question for Dr. Major coming from Mia, who's called in today. Good morning, Mia. Go ahead. Good morning. Uh, hi, all. Uh, Dr. Major, uh, I got my son a little Boston Terrier. He just turned one this month. And uh, all he will eat is fresh pet, which you know is soft. He will not touch hard food. So I try to give him milk bones, raw hides, greenies. But my problem is he goes and hides them. So I I can't tell if he goes back later and gets them or not. So I'm worried about the strength of his teeth. Right. Uh, Have you looked in his mouth and looked at his teeth? They should look pretty good. At a year old. uh, His gums are still kind of like a little pink. Right. They should be pink. uh, Kind of uh, not red, but pink. Yeah, they're pink. uh, Yeah, I don't know why he's hiding them. Uh, You might try some different kinds and see if there's something that he will will like. Uh, 
I would suggest uh, trying some kibble, some hard food, even though he's only eating that, maybe mixing some kibble with his moist food may help. He may eat around it. That, Dr. He, Major, then he doesn't eat the bottom. I've tried that before. I've even right. tried putting, like, some bacon grease on some kibble. Like, not a lot, just like a little bacon grease on it. Won't touch it. He'll leave it there for two days. Well, maybe you're smart. Be careful with bacon grease. I know. Uh, oh, yes, sir. Not, you know, not a lot because I don't want to upset his stomach, but I thought this is right. the ultimate temptation, right? Won't right. Touch yep. it. The other thing to mention right now is uh, rawhide shoes. Uh, a lot of times those can be, uh, what should I say, uh, lodged in the GI tract and can cause some issues if they swallow uh, a large portion of that. So be careful with rawhide. There are some things uh, that can be used as far as chews, such as nylon bones and uh, other things, and he may not want to chew on things. I'm not sure. Oh, yeah, good he heavy. loves shoes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, maybe we can find him a dental uh, shoe. I don't know that that can happen. Anyway, have your vet. If you have your vet, look at him just to be sure there's nothing wrong with his mouth. Uh, I would say that uh, I wouldn't be too worried about it. And frankly, uh, as far as dental problems, I see dental problems with dry food strictly by itself or uh, even the soft food. So uh, it's not it's not going to go away <clears throat> with dry food. In fact, some dogs have just as much tartar as any of them with the dry dry food. So I would suggest if he'll let you, uh, maybe uh, we talked about brushing or massaging those gums. That probably would help some. And I would not uh, be too worried about him uh, not eating those chews, not shoes, but chews, and. Uh, and uh, just continue doing what you're doing. But it would be good at some point when he goes in, uh, have your vet look at those teeth, be sure everything is okay. All right. All right, uh, Mia, thanks for your call. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Let's welcome our guest to the show, a PhD, a PhD student at Auburn University and co-founder of the Banding Coalition of the Americas. Emma Rhodes is joining us. Emma, thanks for being on the show with us today. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, if you would, uh, tell us a little about your background yourself and your interest in birds. Yeah, so um, a little bit about myself. I'm a, um, an avian biologist and I'm a, a master bird bander. Um, so I track and study um, birds uh, of a lot of sorts, uh, in particular migratory birds. Um, and so that's essentially a process where we... Uh, put a little bracelet on the birds, a, a little lightweight bracelet that is serial numbered, uh, so no other bird will ha have that unique um, identification number on on the same uh, bracelet. And so that way we can track birds and figure out what they're doing. Um, so yeah, and I've been doing that for over 11 years now. I actually started at um, a bird banding station in Alabama um, in my teenage years. So um, yeah, as you said, I'm a currently a PhD, PhD student at Auburn University, but on my spare time, I can be fi uh, found birding. I also enjoy uh, volunteering my time uh, towards other projects, including a hummingbird research project, um, looking at uh, distribution of wintering hummingbirds in the southeastern U.S. Uh, is it difficult to band a bird? It would seem to me like they might not particularly like having that done. 
You know, so uh, it, it takes uh, federal uh, federal permits as well as uh, many, many years of training. So it took me 10 years to obtain my uh, master bird banding permit. It's a lot like an apprenticeship. Um, and it's be, it has been done for uh, many, many decades. And so we know that it does not harm them um, and that it's something that uh, provides us the data necessary for conservation uh, management. And how you capture the bird um, really depends on the species. So um, it's really specialized as well based on species. So for instance, I, I ban uh, songbirds hummingbirds and um, some hawks and owls, um, but something like banding herons, for instance, is a completely entirely different process. Uh, you mentioned wildlife management. If you would, uh, go into a little bit more detail about why you think uh, banding birds is so important. Yeah, so um, banding provides insight into the lives of birds, whereas otherwise we wouldn't um, know much about them. Um, some uh, really uh, some great examples, there, there's many, many examples, but it gives us an idea of longevity. Um, a really great example is uh, the bald eagle. So the bald eagles, as many people know, um, they've made a major comeback since we uh, banned DDT um, in the U.S. And when people started monitoring uh, and trying to increase uh, bald eagle populations, uh, they um, implemented bird banding. And because of that, um, a, a few years back, um, we found the oldest uh, bald eagle um, that had uh, been sent into a wildlife center because unfortunately it uh, came into contact with, with a vehicle. And it was found that that bird was banded uh, 32 years ago at the start of those implementations and cons conservation uh, methods and, and uh, in order to bring the populations back from DDT. Um, it also gives us um, info on their migration so we can prioritize habitats for um, migratory birds. So they're wintering in Central and South America as well as their, their breeding habitats. Um, it gives us an idea of uh, productivity and survivorship, so how many offspring birds are producing um, each uh, breeding season. And so those are just a few applicable examples. We could go on and on about how bird banding provides us the necessary information for their com conservation. This is Creature Comforts. We're visiting today with Emma Rhodes, an avian biologist, talking about uh, her work banding birds. Uh, Going to get into hummingbirds here in just a little bit. Uh, we've got a caller on the line. It's our friend Sue in Beaumont. Good morning, Sue. You're on the air with us. Good morning. I'd like to ask, um, I, I don't know what the latest bird counts show, but from my personal observation, I, I don't know how many birds are becoming extinct because I see very few birds anymore. I thought it was just me, but no, it's people who live all around this part of Perry County, birds are rare to see anymore. What, what, I don't know what's happening to the birds, but I remember a few years ago, there was some kind of bird disease that birds would, would just fall dead. I don't know if anybody else remembers that. Uh, there was some kind of virus going around. I'm, I'm just curious, do you, do you suppose those birds, can birds get the COVID virus, do you think? And uh, I just wonder, what, what also about hummingbirds, what do hummingbirds eat in winter? If, if they don't go to the bird feeders, it, there's no flowers or anything. How can they survive? Thanks, Sue, for your call. Emma, any thoughts on that? 
Yeah, so first of all, I'm not going to spend too much time on the, the COVID question, but the simple answer is there is no evidence that suggests that um, they can catch COVID-19 uh, birds. Um, and so there have been some preliminary studies done since the emergence of uh, the new virus and no evidence or data suggests that they can catch it. Um, the other thing is, is I would um, say that overall with birds, we always see influxes year to year, but there was a really great study that was published um, in 2019 and it showed that um, over the, the past several decades, we have lost 30% um, of um, our, our bird numbers, um, our bird numbers. And so we do know that they are unfortunately decreasing. Some birds have actually increased over the past several decades, including game birds um, and birds of prey, thanks to our conservation efforts. Um, but yes, this is why, you know, it's a really important topic. Um, so I definitely wanted to address that. Now on to the winter hummingbird question. I get this a lot. What do, uh, in particular, what do winter hummingbirds forage on, uh, especially after cold snaps and flowers freeze? So um, a lot of people may not be aware of this, but hummingbirds also eat insects. And it's a really crucial part of their diet. It's just as important for them to get that protein as it is, um, you know, the nectar from flowers. And so that that's um, one of the answers. And the other answer, too, is you'd be surprised, especially along the northern Gulf Coast, uh, how hardy some of these um, native flowers are. Um, so, yes, many of them, you know, they will freeze. But then right after, you know, temperatures increase enough to where, um, they may be able to bloom again in, in the winter. All right, Sue, thanks for your call. Always good to hear from you. Uh, Emma, what, uh, what do you mean by winter hummingbirds? Yeah, so um, winter hummingbirds. So what are we talking about when we're talking about winter hummingbirds? So most hummingbirds in North America uh, migrate with a north-to-south pattern. So what I mean by that is let's take uh, the most common um, and the breeding hummingbird in, in um, the east, ruby-throated hummingbird. Come fall, ruby-throated hummingbirds begin their migration south, uh, where they will overwinter in Central America. And then come spring, they will do the reverse and return to North America to breed. So this is a north-to-south pattern of migration. Winter hummingbirds show a much different pattern overall. They show a west-to-east migration. So you have all these western hummingbirds that instead of going down to Mexico to winter, they move eastward to the eastern U.S. where they're going to find a state and overwinter. You can find winter hummingbirds as far as New England. Now, obviously, the further south you go, um, the higher the numbers. So the greatest concentration of winter hummingbirds that we see uh, every winter is along the northern Gulf Coast, so following the coastline. It is time for another break on Creature Comforts. When we get back, we'll continue talking birds with our guest, Emma Rhodes, from the nonprofit Banding Coalition of the Americas. Now, during the break, if you can, go grab a nickel, a five-cent coin, and when we return, we'll do a super simple science experiment over the radio. Call in with questions and comments today at one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672-7464 or send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. Back with more after this. Go get that nickel. Hey, 
Hey, this is Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission. I'm one of the hosts of the Mississippi Arts Hour, the arts interview show on Think Radio. Each week, myself or one of my fellow hosts bring you in-depth interviews with different creative Mississippians. We talk with visual artists, musicians, writers, as well as people who help bring the arts to their communities. We hear about how each artist learned their craft and get some insight into their creative process. You can hear the Arts Hour every Sunday at 5 p.m. on Think Radio, or listen anytime by subscribing to the show through your favorite podcasting app. This is Creature Comforts, and I'm Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. We're visiting today with our guest for the hour, biologist Emma Rhodes. If you missed any of today's show, you can always subscribe to our podcast. Use the podcast app on your smartphone, or you can download the MPB Public Media app for your phone and enjoy all of the Think Radio programs on your schedule. To join our conversation this morning, you can give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring Our phone number is one 672 7464 Email the show, animals at org. Before the break, we talked about getting a nickel for a simple science experiment. I didn't have one, but our call screener, Liz Gill, is letting me have a nickel. So what I want you to do is take the nickel and place it on the tip. Whoops. The tip of your index finger. Easier said than done for some of us. Feel the weight of that nickel. Every nickel is about five grams. Now, think about the ruby-throated hummingbird. It weighs less than that nickel. That's right. The average ruby-throated hummingbird weighs three grams. And as we said, that nickel weighs about five grams. It would take more than 150 ruby-throated hummingbirds to weigh one pound. And Emma, I think that might be a part of the reason why we're so fascinated with them is they're, they're such small creatures, but they really are amazing in what they can do. Yes, I really, really admire them. And that's one of the reasons I love them is they're, they're so much hardier than people realize. And just what they're able to accomplish weighing you know, around three grams, it, it's really quite fascinating. And I never get tired of um, learning more about them. Uh, we'll have more with the hummingbird in just a minute. But earlier, we had a woman called up uh, talking about her dog uh, and uh, interacting with cats, carrying them around in his mouth and those sorts of things. Dr. Major asked if folks had some suggestions. And I think Amy from Byram has a suggestion. Amy, you're on the air with us. Go ahead, please. Hey, um, there's some things that you can do to help. Uh, one thing that you can do is put up baby gates so that the cat has a way to safely get away from the dog. Um, and also cat trees. But also, when you're training this type of problem, you want to kind of break it down uh, where you're not going for solving the entire problem at, at first. So you might get the dog where he's um, not going to grab food from your hand, and then you work up to toys. And, you know, I have a lot of resources that I could share, but it's a, a lot to go into. Um, I'm not sure... It, can I give out my email address on the air, or is that something where you could take it and another person could call back in? Uh, if you don't mind sharing your email address, sure, go ahead. Yeah, it's amy at iso-200.com, and the ISO stands for in search of because the um, perfect score in obedience is 200, and just haven't hit that yet, but we're working on it. Um, so that's an easy way to remember my, my email address. Um, but also the, the person with the fresh pet, you can, you can um, stuff that into a Kong, and then the dog mm-hmm. has to work to get the food that it, that it actually already likes. And then when, once the dog is um, getting that out easily, 
then you can freeze the Kong, and that does a better job on the teeth and keeps them busy. Um, and also because it's a little bit of enrichment, it, it makes their behavior a little bit better for, for the rest of the day. Yeah, I know my brother's dogs love those Kongs, uh, and I actually got uh, one for Christmas for a friend's dog. I got one and bought some treats to go along with it. So, Amy, are, are you a dog trainer or a, what? Um, I am actually in the process of, of starting a, a training business, um, specializing in training problems that people have um, who have found themselves with an elderly relative they need to, to care for because that's what happened to me and I couldn't find any resources to go to. <laughs> so, yes, I, I am. <laughs> All right, and uh, we appreciate your calling in. And again, if, let me make sure I got this right. If, for anyone interested in, in trying to get some more information, it's amy.iso-200.com. Amy at. Amy at. ISO I'm sorry. So let me ISO say that again. Yeah, make sure we get it right. It's Amy at. <laughs> ISO-200.com. Right. And I'd be happy to send resources on, on how to build up to that. I have tons of links I can share. Great. Well, again, thank you so much for calling in. That's one of the great things about this show. Folks, listen, and we'll come in and add to the conversation, and we certainly appreciate that. And again, Amy at ISO-200.com. Uh, I think we've got a question about a bird band, and it comes from Jerry in Madison. Good morning, Jerry. You're on the air with us. Go ahead. All right. Thank you. I just wanted to mention a little story quickly. Uh, a couple of years ago, I was metal detecting off the Big Black River close to Bovina and found a band and cleaned it up and was able to go, and y'all correct me if I'm wrong, it was a bird lab or banding lab, and found, I mean, within five minutes, they got back with me and, and showed me that this bird, this duck had been banded in Quebec, Canada in 1985. And, uh, the, the person had banded and all this little, all this, you know, information about it. And I was just wondering if she could speak towards how, how somebody, if they found a band, what would they do? And I'll hang up and listen. Thanks for the call, Jerry. And the question, uh, Emma, go ahead. Yeah. So it's, the question is the possibility of coming across that is, is that what the question is? Yeah. And if someone does it, you know, how, what should they do? Yeah. So what he did was exactly the right thing. So you can Google, um, just type in on your computer, bird banding lab or laboratory, either one will pull it up and they have a, a prompt that says how to report a band. And so he definitely did the right thing reporting it. If you happen to acro uh, come across a band, absolutely. Like if you find even, um, you know, unfortunately a dead bird with a band, uh, definitely report it um, because that that's really quite amazing that he got that record in. Um, yeah, and it is it is pretty rare for you to, you know, the general public to come across the band, although it, it can happen. I personally uh, was, was birding along uh, the Alabama coast and came across uh, some blue jay feathers and in the midst of the blue jays feathers was a band and this was at a location where uh, banding was occurring and I was able to to report the band and find out that the blue jay had been banded eight years prior so definitely that is the way to go um, it's very uncommon um, but yes if you come across the ban a band definitely report it to the bird banding lab that is who issues us uh, as banders, the permissions to uh, ban these migratory birds. 
and who manages all the banding uh, data in, in North America. Uh, so with the advancement of technology, is there any way to put any kind of uh, like a GPS tracking thing in these bands or are they more just for identification? Yeah, so um, that's an excellent question. So we have um, really made strides with integrating technology with tracking birds. Uh, we're to the point that we can put satellite uh, backpack um, tr- uh the transmitters on large birds like snowy owls and track them in real time using um, satellite data. That technology is not uh, capable of being small enough um, for hummingbirds. Uh, smaller songbirds, we also can use something called geolocators, which have to be uh, caught. Again, we have to catch the bird to remove that geolocator to download the data. Um, there is also um, things like um, radio tags, which um, will ping uh, antenna readers at feeders, for instance. You can do that and, and collect data. So we do have um, some um, advanced technology that we can utilize, and it's really quite amazing. And I'm really excited for the day we can put satellite um, trackers on hummingbirds. But Considering it's a three-gram bird, it has to be very, very, very small. We're just not there yet. Um, but banding, you know, even when we implement these advanced technologies, we always, um, if possible, still try to ban them. Because, again, that's like a social security number for that bird. Uh, so no matter what happens to that bird, if it's captured again in Central and South America or somewhere in North America, we can track it to that initial um encounter and that's really it's really given us a whole lot of insight into these birds lives so we talked about the winter hummingbirds that migrate from west to east uh are they this far north here in central mississippi what are the chances of seeing uh, one of these wintering hummingbirds say in the central mississippi area this month or next month you can absolutely see them um i have just banded a bird in madison uh, mississippi and I know someone who banded one um, in, in far, far north uh, Mississippi, kind of uh, on the edge of Mississippi and, and Tennessee. So this is the time for winter hummingbirds. Um, you definitely want to be on the lookout. Um, definitely let me know if you see one. I have banded about 15 hummingbirds, winter hummingbirds so far in Mississippi. You know, and we'd love to hear about that if you're interested in helping us, you know, figure out what's What's happening with these winter hummingbirds? What species are we seeing? What are the age classes and so on? And so we did a little science experiment. We talked about the ruby-throated hummingbird. Is that one of the wintering hummingbirds? Yes, so we do have some winter uh, ruby-throated hummingbirds. They're not the same individuals that you see during migration. You know, I get uh, one prominent question I get is, if I keep my feeder up during migration or winter, is that causing birds to stay? And, and that's not true. Um, these birds are, are moving through the area regardless, and they're wintering regardless of whether or not you have a, a feeder up. There's much more broader reasons um, why they're doing what they're doing. And so, um, yeah, it, it definitely, um, you know, put, put a feeder up and definitely look out for them. 
It is time for our last break this hour. When we get back, we'll continue our discussion with our guest today, biologist Emma Rhodes. We'll talk a little bit about ways that you could attract hummingbirds to your yard. And we've got a couple of calls on the line. There is still time to call in with your question or comment. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 Email the show by sending it to animals at mpbonline.org. We'll wrap up the show after this last break. contractor ever tell you of the price of something and it sounds so high you think eh, maybe i'll try it myself some jobs just aren't that difficult and yes you can do it if you want to find out how to do those things listen to fix it 101 podcast everywhere You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major and Libby Hartfield and our guest today, biologist Emma Rhodes. Still time to join the conversation. About five or six minutes left in the show. one mpb ring is the phone number. It's one 672 Emails, we'll get those all the time. It's animals at mpbonline.org. We've got a caller on the line with a question about banding, but uh, Emma, before we do that, uh, some tips on um, if folks are trying to attract these wintering hummingbirds uh, to their yard. Yeah, so all you need um, are some basic things. You need a hummingbird feeder, uh, sugar, white table sugar, and water. So, you know, I get a lot of questions about what's the best feeder, you know, you can have as uh, cheap a feeder or as, as expensive of a feeder as you like. Um, it will make no difference. And the goal is to just use regular white table sugar because that's the thing that mimics uh, nectar found in, in natural sources the best. And the recipe is what I call and we call the hand of five or uh, the rule of five. So uh, four parts water to one part <clears throat> white table sugar. Uh, what about, uh, are there any plants that could be, uh, flowers that could be planted that also would attract hummingbirds? Yeah, and you can actually go to hummingbirdresearch.net for a list of plants and uh, that will uh, attract hummingbirds to your yard. So obviously if you use a combination of feeders and plants, um, especially in migration, you will see um, many more hummingbirds. All right. Uh, we have a caller on the line with a bird banding question. We'll say good morning to Adam in Bay St. Louis. Adam, you're on the air with us. Go ahead. Hey, great show uh, and very fascinating. Uh, Emma, I had a question about, uh, you know, do you decide on, you know, you're going to just band as many birds as you can or how do you do this? Uh, do you, and also do you, um, if you've got, a, let's say, a flock of white pelicans you try to ban the entire flock or just one representative from that so that's a great question so this goes back to when i was talking about the banding process it's very project and species specific um so in my case um i, I don't ban pelicans um but it just depends on what you're looking at like for instance um in mobile bay in alabama uh, a, a couple years ago, there was um, some researchers studying nesting uh, brown pelicans breeding on Gelliard Island in Mobile Bay. And uh, they were trying to ban a certain number of breeding individuals and their offspring to follow, uh, you know, how the population was doing. So it really just depends. 
uh, like with winter hummingbirds, I'm trying to catch as many of those winter hummingbirds as possible um, to monitor the distribution of winter hummingbirds. During migration, I'm banning everything that comes through the nets and, and that we catch in, in uh, mist nets. And that's because we're recording, you know, what's there, how is migration changing over time. But then there are instances where you may be, let's say, uh, tracking um, a snowy plover breeding uh, pair, and you just are going to breed uh, that male and female pair because you want to follow them during the breeding season. So it's really, really project specific. And again, this is all approved through federal permitting. All, you know, everything has to be um, through the bird banding lab as far as what, you know, projects you're doing and um, what you're banding species wise. All right, Adam, great question. Thanks for calling in. Uh, Adam, I thought you made a, a great uh, comparison by saying that these bands are kind of like a, a social security number for the birds. Uh, just curious, is it a long, a series of numbers? How, how, how long do it's the band nine, numbers have to be? Nine digits. So it's nine digits. And with hummingbirds, the prefix is shortened to, because there's a prefix, prefix and a suffix. And um, the prefix, the four-digit prefix, is shortened to a letter uh, on hummingbirds because, as you can imagine, the bands are already <laughs> really, really small, and it would be nearly impossible for us as banders to read the bands if there was nine digits printed on it. And also, you mentioned the the, the lab sort of being maybe like a clearinghouse, so there's it, it's interesting. I guess we know sort of who, what's being banded and what's being studied and that sort of thing. They're the main... Uh, as I mentioned, maybe clearinghouse of, of, of banding. Yes. So I report to them on all my banding activities. That's where all the data of banders are, uh, is submitted. All the data has to go through them and the permissions. All right. Uh, let's end the show with another call. Looks like a cat question or a cat comment, but it's Beckett in Poplarville. Good morning, Beckett. You're on the air with us. Hey, good morning. Hey, good morning. I, uh, I we had a cat wander up to our house several months back, and he's decided to adopt us. And we had him checked at the vet. He doesn't have a chip, and, you know, he's healthy, but he's an intact adult male, and we haven't uh, had a chance to have him fixed. And he's been spraying when he comes in the house. And we obviously plan to have him neutered as soon as possible. But is, there, is that going to stop anything like that, or is this just something we have to deal with with him? Great, great question. Uh, a lot of times this is a habit that's hard to break once an adult cat. Uh, certainly neutering should help, but uh, if he's used to marking his territory and he already has started in the house, it's going to be hard to break that habit. Uh, maybe uh, should be lessened. There are... Uh, if you look at uh, uh, different pet stores, whatever, there are some things that can neutralize the urine, but it's very difficult to, you almost have to do like a crime scene uh, investigation to find out where all he has urinated. So good luck with that, uh, but I suspect that he may still continue to mark some. Right. We'll walk in a room and be like, oh, he was in here. <laughs> <laughs> Usually that's the best detection is the nose. And uh, sometimes they do urinate in some inopportune places, such as your shoes or uh, the bed, this sort of thing. So good luck, and I certainly applaud your effort to 
take this cat in and, and take care of it, it sounds like you've made the first steps and do get him neutered as soon as possible. That should help. All right, Beckett, uh, thanks for your call. Uh, Emma, we've got uh, just about a minute left. If someone is interested in the work of the Banding Coalition of the Americas, how would they get in touch and learn more about it? Uh, right now, we are currently working on launching our website. But for now, if you're interested in having um, uh, uh, us come to ban your winter hummingbird, go to hummingbirdresearch.net, and you will find my contact info as well as other banders' contact info on there. All right. We're just out of time. I always like to remind you that if uh, you're out and about and you see something that you don't know what it is, an animal or something like that, and you want us to try to help you figure out what it is, if you've got a smartphone, just snap a quick picture of it and send it to us via email. It's animals at mpbonline.org. Uh, Dr. Major and Libby have a vast uh, experience, a knowledge of experience, and they, if they can't figure it out, uh, uh, um, Libby has some contacts at the museum that might help as well. That's going to wrap us up for today. Creature Comforts is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio. Funding provided in part by listeners like you. To hear today's show or a previous show, you can go to mpbonline.org slash creaturecomforts. Our show is produced by Java Chapman, and our call screener was Liz Gill. For Dr. Troy Major, Libby Hartfield, and our guest, Emma Rhodes, I'm Kevin Farrell. Up next, it's AutoCorrect with the lady auto mechanic, Allison Walker. We'll be back next Thursday at 9 for Creature Comforts. It's heard only on MPP Think Radio.